Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Major news. White Wine Question Time is going live. And not just any old wear, only in London's West End. I cannot believe it. We have some incredible guests lined up for you. So, Saturday the 18th of September at the Leicester Square Theatre with Craig Revel Horwood. Yeah, just as you can smell the sequence of Strictly and the whiff of spray tan as it comes back to our screens, Craig will be in conversation with us. Come and see us. Then on the 9th of October, I can't believe they've all agreed to do this, but we're reuniting the cast of Grange Hill. So I've got Todd Carty, Tucker, Lee McDonald, Samo and Alison Valentine, who played Faye, with a few other guests to be announced closer to the time. And then, finally, on the 13th of November, it's the ultimate girls' night out. We're reuniting the cast of Dunbreeding. So Tracy Ann Oberman, Julie Graham, Tamsin Outhwaite, Denise Welsh and Alison Newman will be joining us live on stage. Tickets are on sale now. They're available from the Live Nation website or wherever you get your tickets. Come and see us. Hello and welcome to White Line Question Time, the podcast that asks its guests three thought-provoking questions over three glasses of wine. And my guest this week certainly knows his way around a wine list and a kitchen for that matter. In fact, he currently has 15 of them if you count all of the restaurants that he owns. One of the UK's best known chefs for the last 15 years, who's been the face of Hangover TV on a Sunday morning alongside Tim Lovejoy, hosting something for the weekend and Sunday brunch. He started out studying fashion and textiles before teaching himself to cook and becoming a chef and then restaurateur. In 1990, he bought Greens, a vegetarian restaurant in a leafy Manchester suburb, which went on to put him on the map as one to watch by way of chefing, and then TV came calling. Since then, he's built up an empire of restaurants, a catalogue of hit TV shows, a stint on Strictly, best-selling cookbooks, and now a brilliant podcast, Grilling, that sees him talk to the best chefs in the business. He still lives in the North with his wife, Ali, who he met when they worked together as waiters at the very beginning of his career, and they have two grown-up children. So let's give him a grilling and dial him up. It's Simon Rimmer. How are you, sir? Uh, what a lovely intro. Thanks. I, 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 felt, I think, wow, he seems like a really nice guy. Do you know what? So many guests say that when you do the intro, because I do spend a lot of time researching these interviews. And actually, a podcast is is a luxurious beast because yeah. you can just keep talking. So nice. So nice. Yeah. And I have I have honestly loved grilling. I started listening to oh, it you. because I was researching you. And then I just carried on and I've done both seasons now. And Thank I've you. learned so much from it because the warmth that you extend to your guests and, and just the familiarity is gorgeous. And it's a proper pull up your chair and listen in conversation because you share so many intimacies. That is so lovely. Well, you know, I, I'd avoided doing a podcast for ages. My agent kept saying, you should do a podcast. You're a broadcaster. You need to do a podcast. I said, but I've got nothing to say. And the, the premise of it came about when I was having I was having a conversation with Tom Kerridge. We're having a cup of coffee together. And What a lovely he, man, eh? Really lovely man. And and he sort of said, oh, yeah. And, you know, I remember reading White Heat by Marco Pierre White. And I decided 
that's the chef I want to be. And there was something there that made me think, wow, we've all got that sort of pivotal moment, not just in, as chefs, but in, in our careers, where you go, that was the moment when I either decided by default or design that that's the way my world is going to go. And so that's where the premise of it came from. And, I, and I've been incredibly flattered that literally everybody that I've invited on has said yes. I think, you know, because I've been around a long time and I know everybody and they feel they feel safe. You know, they, they know that I can speak chef talk with them and also I can talk nonsense with them and telly talk and, and whatever else. And it, it's been, uh, it, it's joyous. I love it. I absolutely love it. This week I've done Michael Keynes and uh, Nadia um, and uh, Nisha Katona and just very, very yeah. different characters. But, you know, just just lovely, joyous thing to do. They, and you know what? You can hear when somebody loves to interview and you do. And it was never what you came um, into no. telly to do. You're first and foremost, you were chefing, right? You were cooking on telly. Yeah, that, that, that's it. And I think, you know, I, 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 and I've got to say that um, hats off to Tim. I think that working with Tim, whilst, you know, people sort of sometimes criticise your style. Tim is a, perf- I mean, you know, Tim, he, he's, yeah. he's a perfectionist. He His level of kind of research. And I like the fact that I think, as we all know, the best way to be an interviewer is to listen. That, that's the thing. Yeah. You know, you want to have a framework, but I think as if you listen and then respond to what you hear, but don't lose track of it. That's I think that just comes with practice, and I, I do I do it love does. it. Yeah, but I think in the first instance, you've got to be interested, and um, yeah, and, and and some people just genuinely aren't. You know, uh, my dad, for example, would never sit down and find an hour's worth of questions to ask somebody, but he'd gladly sit and <laughs> listen to them. I, meanwhile, would have you know clipboards. Uh, with question <laughs> series A of questions, backup questions, backup C, the list, you know, so on and so forth. Because I love it. And I'm fascinating it in people's growth. And I think that's that's what you're profiling with the chefs that you feature. Um, the Rick Stein episode, I, I absolutely loved. There was a brilliant moment where he said, well, was it you that said that your business partner had likened, um, well, what he said was... Um, that a great meal at a great restaurant should compel you to go upstairs and have sex. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. You do? You believe that? Yeah, I do. Well, I think it's that whole thing that, um, and not necessarily with the person that you're with, I don't think it's about sort of saying, I want sex now. It should make you feel sexy. You know, yeah. I think that a, a good meal, and equally, a bad meal makes you feel grumpy. It doesn't matter where you are. If you go to a greasy spoon, have a bacon butty, and the bacon's rubbish and the bread's rubbish, then it makes you feel rubbish. But if you have a really good bacon butty on a very mm. base level, you think, whoa, yeah, you know, and I do. I think I think it should. And I say, I genuinely say that to all of our teams, that, you know what, if we don't leave, make people leave here feeling that they want to have sex, then, you know, we've, we've got something wrong. <laughs> I'd love to see the interns on the first day going, what? Yeah, it's kind of quite interesting <laughs> when I take mum and dad who are 88 and 84 to the restaurants, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, my next question is, how many hotels do you own now so that you can facilitate such a sensory pleasure? <laughs> I'm, just, I'm, I'm missing a trick. I'm missing a trick on that one, Kate. <laughs> but um, how, how does your wife, Ali, feel when you, you explain your workspace like that? Because you guys met, I mean, years ago when you were waiting tables together. And she's also... A chef, is that right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, she, she's not anymore, but yeah, she was. She's a trained chef, yeah. Um, I, I think that, well, I think that everybody who works in our industry really thinks it. It's 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 a really brilliant industry. I think that, um, I think one of the greatest things it can do, for example, at the moment, we've got a young lad who's working with us who we're just taking on as an apprentice here at Greens. And he's 17 and he's at Catering College. And it will be 
not unfair to say that he had a pretty tough time at school, didn't do particularly well, had a few kind of troubles with other people. And he's come and working in our kitchen and we've embraced him. It's an incredibly inclusive environment, the, the hospitality industry. And I think whether it be in a kitchen or whether it be out front, you meet every single walk of life. I think, you know, at the moment, there's a, there's a fantastic movement in our country about inclusivity, um, no matter what creed, colour, sexual orientation, etc., etc. I think hospitality has always been that. You know, I've worked in hospitality now for 34 years and it has never, ever been an issue what your background was, creed, colour, religion, sexual mm. orientation, anything at all. And I think that's the greatest thing about it. And I think if you've got kids who maybe need a little bit of kind of dynamism about them or a little bit of confidence, hospitality is a great place to kind of to, to discover that. So I think, you know, you do meet from kind of shy people who are coming out of their shell to complete and utter hedonists who really, but for hospitality, would probably be locked up. <laughs> Well, that actually reminds me of 15, Jamie Oliver's um, kind of social enterprise restaurant where he brought together a bunch of young uh, men and women and set them to work. And and actually, we saw for ourselves how the fertilizer that he put around their feet in terms of opportunity, potential, and just saying, we believe in you, you know, that we believe you can do this. Sometimes that is all people need to blossom and flourish. And actually, you're right. The hospitality industry, it's, it's a dance, right? It's brilliant. And, you know, that, that whole thing that you you are a team. If you're not a team, it falls apart. And you know when, you know, when you've got a weak link in, in that chain. But at the end of it, no matter how hard it's been, that first drink at the end of the night when you've all finished your shift is fantastic. You know, and you're all yeah. sort of there. And like, you know, in the kitchen in particular, I mean, I'm not a shouty chef at all. I never have been. Um, you're not? But a th- no. Yeah, that's, that's rare. Yeah, I, and it, and it's weird because I think now there's a huge move in our industry to say this is actually really abhorrent. Um, and I've always felt it. I think maybe because, you know, that isn't my background. You know, like you said at the start, Kate, you know, I'm, I'm trained in fashion, textile design. So I wanted to be, because I didn't really know what I was doing. So never mind the rest of the team. So I felt, <laughs> if, well, my dad said this great thing when I first started employing people. He said, when you employ people, you need to give people the opportunity to succeed rather than the likelihood to fail. And I really like that. And I think if you use that in any manner, mantra in life yeah. then it works so you know we can, and don't get me wrong there are times when people need kind of you're like look you know you can't do that you can't do that but you've got to give people the opportunity to flourish and i think that you know that's that's what i always want to do in, in all walks of life well um as, as i did explain to you i have done some deep deep research on you and i know that you have retained so many of your key staff members so absolutely that that validates everything you've just said you've got people that have been with yeah. you some staff members for 20 years yeah, well, I've got, well, tonight, uh, upstairs in the kitchen, I've got uh, Matt, who's worked with me for 27 years, on the front, Reese, who's our front house manager here, he's been here 28 years, and then, because we're a bit short-staffed, then I've got two former employees who've moved on to kind of like, you know, to, to be promoted, who now work in uh, in hospitality catering in sort of schools, and because I'm sure, I can still phone them up, so I've got Tom and Marv upstairs with me as well tonight, who don't work for me anymore, they both worked for me for sort of six seven years each and we i said listen really short this week don't fancy your shift they've both gone oh my god yeah so it's like getting the band back together and so yeah oh that's lovely yeah and that's really lovely you know that that, that, that they still want to do that especially after the 18 months that we've all lived through but i know the hospitality industry more than any i mean there's lots of industries that have really felt the brunt of this but 
you guys particularly? Yeah, I mean, I think I think with the possible exception of kind of theatres, we've probably been, you know, the, the hardest hit. The really. hardest hit, yeah. Um, and whilst, yeah, and I think, you know, whilst we, you know, did takeaway and stuff, then our biggest site in the middle of Manchester called Albert Schloss, I mean, that is a, a big live music, live entertainment, cabaret, beer keller with loads and loads of food. And that's been shut for 18 months because it didn't make any sense to open mm-hmm. it. It's such a big site. It made no sense. And so, you know, from a business point of view, suddenly the what is the, the biggest uh, restaurant that we have was taking no money. And obviously the other side of it is that for somebody like myself, who's very much in the public eye, then again, you you have to be very careful that, you know, it isn't sort of saying, well, it's all right for you. You know, you're still on telly and in like, you know, earning loads of money. Um, and unfortunately, it, it is a reality, you know, but still now I'm not taking any money from any of the restaurants. I've got 14 restaurants and don't, at the moment I'm taking nothing from them because there's no money to take. Wow. So actually, if you didn't have Sunday brunch, Honestly, Kate, when, when, I mean, we've been so lucky that that stayed on right the way through. We had one week when we were off. How, uh, how have you managed to keep that going with all oh, of the difficulties? Really? I mean, shooting with, with COVID restrictions is so tricky. It's rough. Well, we did. We had six weeks when we filmed from home, uh, which was fine. I kind of quite liked it, actually. It was, it was quite fun. Uh, and then we've done, up until very recently, just a really skeleton staff, you know, so down to mm. three cameras rather than five. Anyone that came on as a guest, you know, you know, like, you know, if you're a guest on a show, Kate, you'll take your massive entourage. You've kind of 25 you people with you. It's just obviously. you. Do your own yeah. makeup. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, so you, no one could have their entourage. So it's different, but fun. And I think also things have changed, you know, I, I, I guess even say pre-COVID, probably doing a podcast, then you want to do face-to-face with people. Now Always. we're so used to this, you know, yeah. and don't get me wrong, it's it's still the best thing is being face-to-face, but we're now used to this and it doesn't seem alien anymore. And I think what was really nice, I, I actually think that doing it from home it sort of really felt... Uh, like a nice thing to do because everyone else was in the same boat and you sort of think, well, we can't yeah. get in the studio. So you're seeing, you know, what happens in my house and Tim's house and it just felt like, oh, well, they're in the same boat as us, you know, rather yeah. than being in a, here we are in a glossy studio. Way! They're going, yeah, I'm stuck in my house as well. Yeah, and this is what I've got in the fridge. Deal yeah. with it. <laughs> yeah. So my first question for you, it's kind of something I extracted from your podcast, actually. I loved the interview with Rick Stein, where you plotted the moments and people who've made him the success that he is, his recipe for success, if you like. And I wondered, who are the people and what are the moments that make up your own recipe for success? Okay, I would have to say that my Dad would undoubtedly be the first person. So my my dad, who's now eighty eight uh, and still somebody I turn to, he um, he he was when he worked he was a metallurgist. So he was a scientist fundamentally, um, and really? I was never any good at yeah. And I was never any good at sciences at all. Um, but he was always the person that when he had a job, he always said from a young age said if I ever had my chance again, I'd never work for anybody. I would only ever work for myself. I don't don't ever work for somebody. So I've actually never had a job. Um, I've only ever been self-employed. From when I left uni, I've never, wow. been, I've never been actively employed. But I've never paid kind of class one national insurance kind of thing. So um, he was the first one. And I think just because he's a he's a wise old owl, my dad, and he's very calm and he's very considered. Um, and he's also, I think that you know, I'm I'm 58. So when I was growing up in the 70s, then 
men and dads didn't really show emotion. Whereas my dad was the complete reverse. So, you know, my dad is sort of a quarter Italian. So my dad would constantly, if I was going somewhere, he would hug me and he would kiss me. And my dad would cry at the drop oh. of a hat. And I, But I remember as, oh. like, as a teenage boy thinking, oh my goodness, you know, this is so embarrassing. And I'm still in contact with a couple of guys that I used to knock around with them. And they said, oh my, we were so jealous of your dad. Because we'd go oh. home and be like, all right. And there'd be no conversation, whereas my dad was the complete reverse. And he would ask all of my friends what was going on in their life. So I think that I think he's always taught me to not be afraid of being emotional. Um, you know, all, all of my sort of friends and family, I mean, my kids sort of say, my God, dad, if there was an Olympics for crying, you would win it. Because I love a cry. <laughs> yeah, I, I really, good. really do. So, you know, and I think that that's sort it's of It's an emotional release, you know. Yeah. I mean, like. If you're angry, we would say go for a run or work it out in the gym. So if you're sad, why or or happy, why can't you express that through tears? I, yeah, know, there's no and shame I, to I think, it. So, so I think that he has always been that person that has maybe not ever be afraid to be, you know, compassionate, to be emotional. So he's sort of, he's made me a very gentle person, sometimes too gentle. And I sort of worry sometimes that my son Hamish is a little bit the same, you know. But I think it's a, if there's a trait that I would, pass on from my dad to me to my son then or and to my daughter then you know i would take that all day long so he is undoubtedly you know somebody that's massively important to me then i think the next person um is an aussie chef that we employed called gavin hunt and uh, so we'd had greens for about two to three years and we were starting to kind of like you know getting a good reputation and this Aussie guy just walked in one day. So, look, you know, I'm in, I'm in Manchester. My girlfriend's British. Um, I've been working in a crappy hotel. I've kind of eaten here a couple of times. I really like your food. I'd really like to kind of, any chance you come do a couple of shifts. And now we don't think anything of the way that sort of global cuisine is and that whole kind of sunshiny food. And he came in and really sort of revolutionised what we did. Whereas, you know, we've been going for three years and we were kind of cracking on and doing okay. And he just came in and introduced us to not being afraid to mix kind of Thai food with French food, with British food. And he just came across and spoke a different food language. Um, and he really was sort of quite influential. I'm still in contact with him now. He's back in Australia now, Gav. Um, but he was, and he just sort of set a different, vibe really in the restaurant and he just made it sort of quite funky really so i think we were i think my business partner simon and i was a little bit afraid back then because we didn't know what we do we were blagging it kate you know we'd, we'd got a good reputation <laughs> uh and and you know we we just really but we still didn't really know what we were doing so th there was a bit of that going on and also about four months in from that gav sort of cemented what we'd begun to achieve i think and then, um, again, that sort of pivotal moment thing, that real one for us was we had one Friday when we were busy at this age. We're only tiny. We're only 32 covers at first. And we yeah. had this one Friday when the phone just went mental and we were booked up for like four weeks in advance, lunch dinner, lunch dinner. We're thinking, what has gone on? Why is, why is it like this? Anyway, so then on the Saturday night, one of our regular customers comes in and she goes, oh, you must be happy with that review. I don't know what you're talking about. And The Guardian had done a thing about um, the 10 most wow. exciting new restaurants in the UK. And it was like literally, you know, a sort of little two column inches. And it was basically eight restaurants in London, one in uh, Edinburgh and us as a BYO veggie cafe in a South Manchester suburb. And that was that moment when, I, I think that was the moment when I thought, okay, I, I kind of know what I'm doing now. 
you know that and i think from that moment i think i gained confidence so i think that was a that so it was came a, that at the right time it's kind of affirmative is, is yes very much exactly that yeah you know we yeah. were busy and it just took us to that next level where you know sort of people felt that you know we were we were doing something that that mattered uh and then after that and also by then it sounds like with gav's influence you'd you'd started to do fusion food before it very even much, had a yeah, tag yeah yeah but yeah, but uh, people could people could come to you for something that they genuinely weren't getting anywhere else locally yeah, and I think as well that, you know, our premise when we started Greens was because I'm not a veggie. I mean, I, load, I eat very little red meat these days, but I'm not a veggie. And it was a devout carnivore when we started. Um, I think that what happened was that we, because we didn't know what we were doing, we kind of ignored what the rules were. So m- most veggie food back in 1990 when we opened was very worthy. It was very brown. It was very worthy. It was very heavy. Um, and it was almost about, I felt it was quite a negative cuisine. It was about what you couldn't eat rather than celebrating what you could eat. So we always wanted to celebrate it. Whereas now that veggie food is a celebration of ingredients. And so um, I I used to go to market every day before you could get um, deliveries. I used to go to market at five o'clock every morning and I would talk to the stall holders. Well, why are those peppers more than that? And why is that? And they said, well, those are more because they're kind of local. It's from a small producer. I was going, well, that makes sense. I'd rather kind of like buy from somebody local. So we were doing that without even knowing why. And then nobody really was doing... Say, for example, if you do like a really beautiful red wine sauce so traditionally you would always do it with kind of with veal jus and you reduce down reduce down and it would be very kind of meaty and i was thinking well why can't you do that with veg stock why can't you do that same principle so i think we yeah. just ended up doing things that you know i i didn't know I, I could i could cook like anybody can cook but i was thinking well that red wine sauce i really like it why can't i just make it with veg stock? so i think we were just doing different things and yeah you're right and then gather think took us to that to that next level so that was really important then i think probably the next really big pivotal moment is I think then we got cocky um, and we opened another restaurant that wasn't veggie that was just around the corner from here called Felix um, and we nearly went bankrupt because um, we opened the third one pretty soon after that so we had three restaurants we opened two restaurants in the space of 18 months because we thought we were invincible um, and we weren't we actually weren't good enough to kind of do it so we did one that was that was fusion cuisine not veggie and we did one that was sort of Mediterranean cuisine no red meat but lots of fish and lots of white meat um, and we just got it wrong we, we got one of the locations wow. wrong and we got the management side wrong and so we and at the time my daughter Flo was about probably about 12 months old um, and it was a race as to whether we could sell one of the businesses to save it or the bank were going to foreclose on us. And we were three days from the bank foreclosing on us. Um, and so, yeah, we were on the brink of, you know, being a, a young family and actually kind of losing everything. So I think from that, that was the day. And I, I can remember just talking about it actually makes me feel I bet I'm literally, I'm I'm short of breath listening to this going, oh my God, tell me it was all right. Of course I know it was all right, but living through that, that's hard, right? And lessons that you take from it are brilliantly valuable later down the line, but you don't know that when you're sat there sweating, looking at a 12 month old baby thinking, I'm I'm about, I I could lose everything. We could be done for here. Exactly that. And because also, because it doesn't happen overnight, it's not like, oh, the bank have said they're going to foreclose. You've got a year of hell, you know, minimum of a year of hell where you know things aren't going right and you're losing money and you're praying for a good week and it's not a good week. And so you then, and you're trying to spread yourself across three restaurants and, you know, Greens was always consistently fine, but the other two were just hemorrhaging cash because we got them wrong. Um, And we, we literally, 
we were three days away from the bank foreclosing on us. Um, and I don't think they would have taken our home from us. I mean, you'd have to be, even the banks would have to be pretty ruthless to take your home from, you know, from somebody with a 12-month-old baby. But but nonetheless, it was horrible. And I think that I, I remember promising that day that I would never, ever allow that to happen again. That, you know, I, I'm a risk taker. You know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a self-employed entrepreneur. So, of course, I'm a risk taker. But I thought, right, I'm never, ever going to allow that to happen again. So that was, I think that's almost, that's as big a pivotal moment as anything I've done. That as, is as huge, is yeah. Now. And, and obviously, it's left you with an appetite for educated risk as opposed to just risk. Yeah. And there is a difference between an educated risk, isn't there? And yeah. just a, and I, what the hell, we're on a roll, let's go for it. Yeah, and I, th- I think just a, a level of arrogance that I don't think I ever felt I had, but clearly did, because I thought, you know, we can do this. So when we opened Site 2, Site 2 started really well, so I thought, let's do Site 3. And we, almost the minute we opened Site 3, we knew we got the location wrong. We took a gamble that it's a bit like, say, if you'd bought at the right time, opened the rest at the right time in Shoreditch, you'd have got it for really low rent, and then you go, wow, this is brilliant now. It's Because we thought where we opened was really going to fly, and it didn't. It didn't ever take off. So we were kind of like, you know, we, we were in an oasis in a desert. And of course, the problem with hospitality, it's about conglomeration. So you need to be around other great places. So if you come towards, you can go for a drink somewhere first, et cetera, et cetera. And there was nowhere to go. Uh, so that was, I mean, it was horrible. You know, it was, it was oh, the Even as you're talking about it, I'm thing. like, I'm all tense for you. My chest is tight. And thinking about where you were at your life in that time as well. You've just, so your daughter was your firstborn, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Flo, so, so, Flo was so we're, so we're at 1998, 1999. Yeah. So you're, you know, I, that first year with the baby, you're kind of as a couple on your knees knackered. Yeah. It's a massive lifestyle change. And then you've got all of that stress wrapped around it. I mean, if if anything is going to test a family unit, you got it right there. Oh, it, it, I mean, it was it was brutal. It really was, and I think I think also I think, but for the fact that um, that Ali was all in hospitality, then I think it's one of those that you probably don't survive those, do you? Because yeah. you know you you have to have somebody who understands what's going gets on, it. Um, yeah. you know, kind of gets it and is kind of living it the same way that you are. So yeah, but yeah, it was it was the the worst of times, undoubtedly. But I love that you've elected the worst of times as an as a as an ingredient for your recipe for success because we often overlook. Or we want to kind of whitewash over what are fundamentally seen as mistakes, but they're massively informative and therefore transformative, aren't they? Oh, completely. And I think also on the back of it, then um, I also, just by chance, I got asked to do something on telly. When all this was going on, I got asked to do my, my first bit of telly and I'd never harboured any ambition to do it. You know, for me, it was like, this is a good chance to kind of promote the restaurants. I was asked to do something on the local news programme. They would do something about veggie food. Um, and so um, I sort of went on to do it. And then I think because I wasn't trying to get a job, then they kept asking me back because I was just me. You know what I mean? I wasn't, you know, I, I wasn't sort of thinking, hey, I'm going to be a TV presenter. I'm gonna, this is going to be fame and fortune. I was just, I was just, being me so almost like you know through that adversity then trying to get the bookings in for greens yeah just doing a bit of local yeah, 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 PR. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and 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 so you know that that sort of led on to telly and uh you know and I, I think i think you feel the same way about telly that i do i love it as a as a medium i love it as a way of getting a voice across i love actually doing broadcast in any way shape or form um and i've never 
I've never really been driven by being famous. Don't get me wrong, being in the public eye, open stores that you never imagined could ever be open. But, you know, it's... It's a great process. You know, it's a fantastic process being on telly or being on radio doing a podcast. I think it's a great job if you love the job. It's not a great job if you love all of the stuff that sits around it because ultimately that's just... um, I don't know how healthy all that stuff is and how you start to measure success by your perceived popularity. The fame thing is another tricky one, isn't it, with things like Love Island and and a lot of the reality shows. Terrifies me. Terrifies me. It's not a nice bedfellow, is it, fame? I mean, I I always think that I've been quite lucky, the fact that I've been on uh, every weekend for 15 years. So I, I don't know how I'll feel come the day when that ends because I love the process so much um i you know i i i i won't miss all the but let me tell you it doesn't stop right once you've done 15 years that's it you kind of yeah you know you've passed the point where you could stay off air for the for however long you you continue to live but the day you die it will be in the papers because you meant something to people because you've been there that long and that's that's the truth of the matter isn't it (laughs) cheery stuff isn't it yes But because you've done it for so long, what I worry about is they get crashed into fast fame. It's like fast food, you know, and they get these contracts thrown at them and they can make a ton of money. And then the next year there's a new cast and they are gone. Yeah. And who? where is the duty of care in terms of making sure those yes. those men and women are okay? Because they're young. They're not fully developed. Yeah. Um, we're never fully developed, but particularly at that age, I think it's it's quite, it can be a fork in the road. Um, yeah. And I don't know that there's a particularly I I would worry about putting my my own self there at that age. Put it that way. I agree. Yeah, I agree. I I, I think I'd worry about putting my own self there at my age. Never mind at, at that age. Yeah. You know, I, think <laughs> I mean that 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 wouldn't make good watching, would it? If they did like you know if they did Love Island for like for the fifty to six year olds. My God, that nobody did. Nobody would be wearing swimwear. That's for sure. <laughs> Love Island is not in your recipe for success, is it? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> you and some budgie smugglers. <laughs> oh my goodness, we no one ever needs. I got, I got asked to do that. What was the one, the diving one? Um, splash. splash. I got asked to do that. I said nobody needs to see me in a pair of budgie smugglers live on national telly ever, ever. No matter how much. How did you get was. along though? You know, like the, I don't think a lot of people know this about the costumes that men wear on Strictly, but for five years I think I hosted the Strictly tour so yeah. you know I saw a lot of quick changes backstage so yeah. you guys were aware you know when you go on and you wear those shirts that look like they're never going to crease there's a reason yeah. for that because you're basically wearing um, yeah. a bodysuit so yeah. they, they, they've got clips under- it is yeah it's it's clipped underneath and it's how do you feel do you know what I, I love the whole Strictly experience to be honest Kate I think that if you're going to do it then you have to embrace the glitter the tinsel and the bodysuit and the spray tan uh, in every single way. Oh, the tanning's great, isn't it? It's just <laughs> I love brilliant. the tanning. Friday afternoon tanning was just brilliant. And then you weren't allowed to have a shower until it's morning. So you've been training all day. And then before you leave, you get sprayed in the tan. So you're sweaty and you're sticky. And then you sit and you have dinner and you think, this is, what am I doing? But I loved it. It was, it's, it's Did you do the tour experience. as well? No, I didn't because I was rubbish. So, you know, I, I wasn't invited to do the tour. That was only the ones that were either like, hilariously funny I was I was that lumbering middle-aged bloke in the middle who got knocked out at week six and was quite content with that really. 
But I, when when I was doing Strictly, I always I felt sorry for Tim because basically because obviously you know you do you do the live show and then you do the Sunday results show. So if you're in the dance off, which I was quite often, then I was getting back to the hotel at one thirty in the morning, and then I'd be up at five thirty to do Sunday brunch. And so by the time it got to about eleven thirty twelve. I was fit for nothing. So, you know, to be there going, it's your link there, mate. You're, oh, yeah, coming up after the break. So I was, I was <laughs> you're so tired, you're on the brink of hallucinating. It was, it was kind of one of because those. Because what you don't factor in is the adrenaline. Oh, yeah. And the adrenaline is enormous and you run on it. And yeah. then when they go, and that's, that's it, that thank you, studio, thank you, cameras. And you go, oh, yeah. my God. Yeah. And it takes about three or four hours to come down, but you crash. Yeah. Yeah, 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 big time. Anything else that you'd like to add into your recipe of success? I mean, I, th- I think it's funny because I always think, and I know when I do, really when I interview everybody, it's almost like the build-up to success with a small S are the most interesting bits. They're the formative ones, aren't they? And then when you hit a level yep. of success, then then it's about maintaining and making sure that you don't take your eye off the ball and that you you then temper or exceed your ambitions so that you make sure that you don't become stale. And I think yeah. the hospitality industry is very much that. You know, I'm, I'm very flattered the fact that we're 31 years in with Greens and it is a Thursday night when I'm talking to you now, Kate, and it's 10 to 6 and we will be completely full in 15 minutes. And that's kind wow. of great. And I think that sort of shows, you know, that we're, we've we've stayed relevant and that sort of feels good. And I think that, don't get me wrong, I think there's obviously, there's an element of fact that I'm a bloke off the telly and that helps with trade, but it's not the reason why we're busy. The reason we're busy is because I think that we're a good restaurant that does exciting food and we continue to do it. So I think that, you know, I think that, the end of my recipe success, if you like, the dessert course is more about kind of now. I sort of feel that I'm happy where I am and I'm still ambitious and I still want to kind of keep moving forward. But I think what you said before about calculated risk rather than just risk is what it's about now. Mm. And you do stop becoming, you, know, you stop just being a chef who owns a restaurant and you become a businessman and a restaurateur. So, you know, and I think that that's the biggest change that happens and you don't know when it happens, but all of a sudden it does. I mean, I said to you before yeah. we started recording that, having 14, 15 restaurants is more straightforward than having four. When you have four, you're the big boss who does everything. If there's a problem, they phone you. If the plumbing needs sorting out, they phone you. If the, if they've run out of napkins, they phone you. If there's a problem with the block toilet, it's you that kind of sorts it out kind of thing. Whereas with 14, then you are in that fortunate position that there's a team of people who have the responsibility to do that. So that's, that's a nice place to be, but I still like to feel I said, like, you know, tonight I'm back on the tools. You know, I'm, I'm in the kitchen uh, running a section tonight. So, you know, and I, and I still love what it. What section you on? What section uh, I'm doing do? desserts tonight just so I could do this because desserts will start later than everything else. Oh, and bless Because I, I knew it was doing you. I thought, well, it's easy for me if I do desserts tonight. Yeah, well, thank you. I appreciate that. That's <laughs> really good of you. <laughs> Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Thank you. 
Now, my next question, you're self-taught as a chef and your podcast hears you speaking with real warmth, as I said, and knowledge with some of the best chefs in the business, many of whom you've cooked alongside on Sunday brunch. Um, So I wanted to play fantasy chef with you, a bit like fantasy football. I want you to build for me the ultimate chef, bolting on different skills or quirks or talents that you think other chefs that you you've seen in action uh can bring to the table okay so do you want to do you want names do you want it to be a, a composite of real yeah. chefs okay all right yeah yeah like, um, like like fantasy football like but we're just gonna make one massive oh my god chef okay all right so i think um You'd need the dexterity and the skill of Marco Pierre White. Um, every single person that I interview says that when he was at his pump in the kitchen, he could prep and set up faster than anybody else. And as a chef, that's one of the biggest things that, that we all yeah. want to do. So when you come in, that you're ready for service. And, you know, I, I think I'm pretty good. I, I got in here at four today so that by five, I was completely set up, ready. No matter what happens when I walk up there, I know I can go. But he would be the person I would have doing my setup for me without a shadow of a doubt. Um, I think I would like uh, Tom Kerridge's humour uh because he's an incredibly funny guy incredibly lovely guy um and he's very very good at taking the mickey out of himself so i think i would definitely definitely want that um i think i would like to have uh claude bosi who is exec chef mm. at the bendham i'd like his voice um because i think Beautiful. he can yeah he can make sort of saying he could he could shout at me and I'd still feel like you know he was being really really sexy. He, you know, <laughs> he, he, he could swear at you or he could just say to somebody, uh, "Here's some bread," and you just go, "Okay, Claude, I'll take the bread out" because his voice is just amazing. You're right, great power of persuasion and a great way of um, yeah making food feel sexy, which is important. yeah. There you go. And I think um, I think the the, the creativity uh, of Jason Atherton. So Jason Atherton, who is the only person I've interviewed who has more restaurants than me. So Jason's got 18. Um, and he has such a diverse portfolio and has Michelin stars in, in various ones. But he runs Pan-Asian restaurants, classic French restaurants, brasseries, um, tapas bars. And I think that his ability to create a team and to create dishes that just tick the right boxes for whatever his brand is. It's quite an amazing thing. And I think that, you know, he he really, really has just got some tremendous ability. And when you talk to him, his his background is amazing. He I interviewed him last week for the podcast and he wanted to go and work at El Bulli, you know, one of the greatest restaurants in the world, sort of like the whole place that sort of changed the whole world in terms of in terms of the way that we approach food. And um he couldn't get a job there, so he persuaded them to let him wash dishes. He was a head chef in the UK. He got himself over there, got a train, got walked up there in the morning in the boiling heat up a mountain where, where the restaurant was. And they said, we've got no work for an English guy. So well, let me wash pots. Then wash pots for two days. I'll do a bit of basic prep. And he got himself a job on the base of doing that. And you think that's, that's kind of, that's sort of, if you like, that's the ultimate chefdom. That's kind of, you know, what we all sort of, yeah. what we all, they're the, they're the locker room stories that you want to boast about. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a war I, story, I, isn't it? It is. I did 74 days, 74 <laughs> AFDs nonstop. So do you know what an AFD is? 
cake. No, what is it? An AF day is an all fucking day. So that's what you have. Oh. So you either do so you either do a daytime or you do AFDs, kind of like, you know, which is what everybody hates. Pushing all the way through, yeah. yeah that's exactly. a young man's game, yeah. isn't it? But gosh, gosh, so so he he ate the ultimate humble pie, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, yeah, he, he absolutely did. You know, he's just, he's, he's a fantastic guy. I love that. Okay, so he's in. And then um, I need to have, I don't quite know where it fits in, but I need to have the ability to make Atul Kutchar's tandoori lamb chops, which is the greatest piece of meat I've ever eaten in my life. And I've eaten them on really? various occasions. Oh my goodness, I love Atul. He is one of the most gentle human beings ever and if you ever get the chance so vasu his his latest place in marlow um if you get the chance to go and have even if even if you don't eat red meat just go and eat his tandoori lamb chops because it's actually it's actually a, a religious experience it's not just food i don't know how he does them he's told me how he does them and i've still tried and tried okay i don't have a wow. tandoori, but i've never even come close to doing it he's he's told me he said this is exactly how i do them and i've tried to do them and don't. it's just glorious so uh, the ability to make those is what I want. I just have I just have tandoori lamb chops on my menu from my ultimate chef, and it would just be that the atul right hand that kind of makes them. So I have atul kuchar's <laughs> right hand and marinating in tandoori technique. Um, and then I think, uh, what else do I need? Oh, I think I probably have to have um, Richard Corrigan's ability to drink because um, I think that's quite a good thing to have as a chef. Um, yeah. So no matter no matter how much you want to drink, Richard Corrigan wants more and is the greatest bon viveur that you can ever, ever spend time with. Um, but you always, always regret it. So I'll have, I'll have Corrigan's thirst. And his livers, or maybe not his livers, actually. You could donate those to science. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you could. Is that, was that too? I think, that, I think that's pretty much, I think I've got every, I'm, just, I'm trying to think if I've missed anybody You did great there. That, you know. And what I love is that it was instinctive. Is there anyone that you've, I mean, would you want a bit of Angela Hartnett in there for anything? I mean, have we, have we touched on pastries, desserts? Yeah, you see, Angela, Angela Hartnett's, Angela Hartnett's ability to kind of like, just actually just win. Is a thing. I don't ever watched her when they did um, Kitchen Nightmares, the first series with Ramsey, and she would just say, "You just hear her say in the background, you go, shut up, Gordon.'" And it was just brilliant. <laughs> She's just. Always, I went, and when she was on the podcast, and because the podcast is sponsored by Weber, so we talk about barbecue. And she goes, "Oh God, I'm crap at barbecue." And you think, you're not. Angela Hartner isn't crap at anything. She's just so beautifully understated. I, yeah, she I think, really underplays I think, it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'll, all right, I love, I love Hartner's temperament. That that that's a good one. I love that. Um, pastry. Yeah, I didn't touch on pastry. Yeah, pastry is important, right? Because if somebody can't do pastry and you've got pastry in the menu, you're screwed. Yeah. Uh, I, you know who I love, who is sort of relatively new on the scene, is is Ravneet Gill, who does um, Kids Bake Off. Um, really yeah. fantastic pastry chef. She's amazing. And I think that she talks about it in a very modern way and yet is an incredibly classically trained pastry chef. So, yeah, I'll, I'll have Rav to do um, pastry. It's a weird-looking human being we've created, Kate. Well, the good news is you don't have to look at them. You just have to eat the, the fruits of their labour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't know the actual... As you put them all together, it would be particularly appetising, but I'm sure that the food would taste great. Yeah. Now, my final question to you, 
Um, I wanted to touch upon um, something that just sits on your Wikipedia page. And you're probably like me. I've never read my Wikipedia page. I know it's full of inaccuracies because it gets quoted back to me. Um, and there is the, the jo- is it a joke that you invented pulled pork? <laughs> I knew you were going to ask that. Right. Okay. So, no, of course it's not. It's the absolute truth, Kate. It's sif- You're such it a liar. A lie. Yeah. <laughs> so basically what happened was, this is going back a good few years, and I cooked pulled pork on Sunday brunch, and Tim just went crazy for it. I think it was just one of those moments in time that it, all, our, all the ducks were in a row. And I think at the time it became the most downloaded recipe on Channel 4, including kind of Jamie Oliver, Gordon Ramsay. It was just one of those things that everybody wanted to cook it. And then almost then about six months later, it be- that whole slow and slow thing just really took off. So we just started saying, you know, oh, you know, my invention. And it's great because whenever it's mentioned, it always gets people really, really angry. So people go, <laughs> no, it's been... A- been around for years when i did strictly i sort of did it on my on my interest yeah and of course my the thing what tell us something people didn't about i invented pulled pork and then when that goes out and go, he didn't he didn't it's been around for years he invented in the state and then my favorite one that somebody took me to task in it was said like pulled pork has been around as long as there's been pigs in the british isles and i said but my granddad invented pigs and so i kind of i just constantly I just can't, and I'll, I'll deliver it if, I, if I'm abroad anywhere. I'll take pictures of like menus with pulled pork. And oh my god, my my invention has gone all over the world. I love it. I, I like how much it winds people up. Who anybody could believe that I really think that I invented pulled pork. But you stoke the myth, right? You continue Always. to feed the beast, right? So, which so I wanted to ascertain that with you. Um, and it's brilliant that you embrace it in the way that you do. But then I wanted to to ask if you could recall just a couple of your favourite, sort of, they might not even be true, just kitchen legends, the myths uh, that sit out there in the ether of of the Super Chef kingdom. Um, and I, like I said, doesn't matter if they're true or not, just the ones that you think, what a great yarn. Uh, well, always the one that used to come about in when one of the first restaurants that I ever worked in was because it used to be it was a really really busy restaurant and it was sort of near relatively near Manchester Airport. So every now and again, you would literally get like a busload of of Chinese tourists who were staying in a hotel around the corner and they'd eat in this restaurant because it was sort of you know quite well known. So it always used to be that a story that many chefs had told. Well, I remember the night it was a quiet Monday night and I was just in there on my own. Coach load of Chinese tourists come in. They all wanted steak anyway. So I'm there and I'm just kind of like chopping away. Got a bit, you know, was prepping a bit of meat. Anxious, cut the top of my finger off. Thought, well, I can't let them down. I'm on my own in the kitchen. So I just cauterized <laughs> it on the grill. Just put it under the grill and just sealed the end of it. Carried on cooking. Oh! Went, and got, me, went and got me finger sewn back on the other day. Absolute nonsense. Nobody ever, ever did that. But it's, it is kind of one of those magnificent, magnificent myths. And, and then you do have the ones where... That's not people, like unicorns, right? That's that's not real. Not real. Absolutely no way is that real. There's just not a chance. But it's one that you hear many, many times. And then all the other ones are things like, you know, that you sleep in the restaurant and you never go home. And I've come kind of close to doing it. I used to... I, I, I would finish work at one o'clock in the morning and I'd work at five. And you'd dine out on those things, you know, that you would yeah. actually... You'd actually say, yeah, I worked 20 hours yesterday. They came again, did another 21. And then came and in fact, a lot of the... I, a lot of the, all the Michelin boys that I've interviewed on grilling and any, anyone who's worked in Michelin's odd restaurants, they will say, yeah, 
when we were young, basically what we'd do is we'd be there at six in the morning. You'd be there like you'd be prepping fish. You'd finish service at one. You'd be back in at six. But we'd go out then. We'd go out and we'd get smashed. We'd come straight back in. But we were sober because <laughs> you weren't allowed to come in drunk. Mm-hmm. And then we'd start again. So that they're, they're the myth that they really, really love to tell. Um, and then the other one that I really like, a friend of mine who worked in the States for a while, he worked in Hawaii. And he said, oh, yeah, what we used to do, we'd uh, go down early in the morning and they were bringing the tuna in. Uh, and he said what had happened is they'd basically they'd kill the tuna in front of us and just hand us a piece of warm tuna, just have warm, raw tuna. And it was just like, it was just like a brotherhood thing, you know, and we kind of like, we'd share a little bit. Yeah, oh, bollocks. Bollocks, did you? I think they're possibly my three favourites. I love it. Do you know what? You're so quick to respond as well. You walk around, you hold these stories in your head. And that's why I would really encourage anyone listening to to flip over now and follow or hit subscribe on Grilling because Bless all of this you. is there with some of the best in the business. I truly enjoy, I really gorged on on that. That's the so point kind. That I'm going on holiday tomorrow and I was like, shall I save some for holiday? And in the end, I just thought, no, I can't. I had loads that's of so like nice. long drives to do and I really enjoyed it, Simon. Thank you. I mean, I, I love it. You know, like we said at the start, this, I, I love it in the same way that, you know, this has been lovely. They're, they're conversations, aren't they? You know, I think that that's what, yeah. that's yeah. what I think what makes a good podcast. You sort of think, you know, it should be that everyone listening is sort of thinking they're having a chat. Then that's, that's what you want, isn't it? And it's interesting people sharing pearls of wisdom that they've collected along their way you know and i love that yeah i love that and you do with them what you will you can let it sit behind you between your ears for as long or as little as you like well i always wanted i always had this this dream in my head because greens is actually just around the corner from where i used to live and when when flo was born i had this dream in my head that i was going to happen ali is going to come walking around to the back door with my baby in arms i'm going to kiss my baby i'm going to kiss my wife i'm going to give her beautiful food to take home because she's been busy and the baby's been crying and i've been working i've made an amazing food what would really happen is i'd get a, i'd get a phone call from and she'd go bring some bog roll home we haven't got any so it, it didn't quite pan out in that romantic <laughs> way <laughs> That you'd hope. And by the way, I hate you because you had more sleep than me last night. Goodbye. Bang. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, thank you so much, Simon. Pleasure. And um, continued success with all that you do. Bless you. Thank you, Kate. That's it for this week's White Wine Question Time. And my huge thanks to Simon Rimmer for coming on and imparting so many pearls of wisdom and funny moments. Uh, If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please don't be afraid to rate and review us. It really helps other people to find and discover the show. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today and you want to hear more, don't forget those full episodes are in our back catalogue alongside 140 other guests all waiting for your download pleasure. So go on, peel for the back catalogue and fill your boots. As always, uh, the show is produced by me, Kate Thornton, with Libby Knowles and Richard Hatherall from Yahoo UK. And our beats, as always, come courtesy of Andy Bell. We'll be back next week with more great chat. Until then, take great care out there. <laughs>